Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 8. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. The hour is late, the time is short, and a storm is coming. So this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, pouring over prophecies, treating the infection of mystery Babylon in the church, and giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. Before we get started, I'd like to ask for your support, and I don't do this lightly, but we are in need right now. So if you can spare any financial support this month, we would greatly appreciate it. I'm working on getting some freelance artwork lined up, and I'm also working on a few different products that are going to hopefully be out within the next couple of months. But in the intervening time period, uh, we really are counting on your financial support. Thank you so very much to the people who have already sent in support. You have no idea how much it helps, but we do need more right now. So please prayerfully consider helping us out this month by going to my website, watchmanalexander.com, and clicking on the Support My Ministry button. You'll find it uh, at the bottom of the page and also on the uh, right hand of the blog, uh, which you're not going to see on the mobile, but if you're on a computer, you're going to see that right hand uh, sidebar when you're on the blog, and at the top of that is a Support My Ministry button. Uh, But you can just scroll down to the bottom of any page and find it there as well. It's a PayPal, but you don't have to have a PayPal account. You can use a credit card of any type. And really, any amount would help. Big or small, doesn't matter. We could really use it right now. If you are contributing to other ministries on a regular basis, consider removing your support from them and redirecting it to us just for this month. I'm not asking you to stop supporting them on an ongoing basis, but even if it's just for one month, that would really help us out. And then you can uh, redirect it back to where it was originally. So again, please prayerfully consider this. And I know God will come through because he is a faithful and a good God, and we are just believing him for it. And you guys are going to be the blessing, the tool of blessing uh, for him to accomplish that. Thank you so much. Well, I am pretty excited about this episode, but it is going to be a bit of a whirlwind because I'm going to throw a lot of information out there. You know, in episode number two, we talked about how much time we have left until the end of the age. And I argue from scripture that we have three or four decades at the most. 
But now we need to talk about what to expect during and after that time frame. What's coming up? What should we have on our radar over the next few decades and beyond? Now, this is not going to be me making a lot of predictions based upon analysis of current events or, you know, the economic and geopolitical systems that I see at play right now. That's not what this is about. This is going to be what Bible prophecies await fulfillment. Which biblical oracles can we read about and realize that they have not yet come to pass? Before we get started on this little adventure, I want to issue a warning. Please don't get exasperated and fall into uh, some sort of foolish behavior because of this, because I'm going to be covering a lot of stuff and it may not all really click together at first in your mind. And especially as you study these prophecies on your own, you may find that at least on the surface, they seem contradictory sometimes. There are going to be some uh, oracles that seem to indicate one thing and then other oracles and other books will seem to indicate something opposite. And you're going to wonder, you know, how can I reconcile these things? And sometimes people get so frustrated while trying to reconcile the different prophecies that they end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I've seen this happen on numerous occasions where people, they simply get overwhelmed or exasperated while studying eschatology and they retreat to an allegorical method. And the reason they do this is because they can't seem to make logical sense out of it. And so they assume that it doesn't make sense. And then they resort to allegorizing or to spiritualizing the meanings of these passages so that they can sleep well at night. <laughs> Basically, that's what it comes down to is that it's so jarring and frustrating that they have to somehow relieve that mental anxiety by making it a very loose interpretive method that they're using when they read these oracles. That, that's just unwise. OK, I'm going to come right out and say, don't do that. There's no need for it. And I'll give you a little bit of an explanation as to why from scripture we should expect to have difficulties interpreting prophecies and we should expect to have a little bit of cognitive dissonance in this whole process. But first, let me just give you an example of a person who has done this, an author by the name of Peter Goodgame. Now, I highly respect him and his work is what led me, one of the primary things that led me to write Leviathan's Ruse. I think he did a brilliant job in the second coming of the Antichrist and some of his other work. He made some missteps. Sure, you know, everybody does. But overall, I thought he had some really good work. Now, I don't know about his later material because I really stopped following him. And the reason I stopped following him is because after having um, an email discussion with him, I came to realize that not only was he withdrawing from a lot of sort of conservative, normal conservative uh, ways of interpreting the Bible, but he was withdrawing entirely from premillennialism and becoming an amillennialist. I think he's a universalist amillennialist now. But uh, I was highly disappointed because I, I really looked up to this guy and for a while, I struggled with, well, why is, is he taking this approach now? And I started to question whether or not my approach was correct, because um, he was sending me some, some information to uh, read over myself. And, um, you know, he was just trying to get me on the same page as he is now on. 
And after considering these things, and I had dismissed a millennialism a long time ago, but I sort of revisited it and I revisited the allegorical method. And, you know, we've already talked about that in a previous episode as to why that's bunk. But, you know, I wondered if, well, maybe a millennialism has some merit to it. So I went back and looked at that and I quickly dismissed it all again because I found that Peter Goodgame's reason for falling back to those things, he, I think, used it as a safe harbor because he couldn't make sense of prophecies about the millennium. He was having so much mental trouble with making the different millennial oracles fit and click with each other that he just threw up his arms and said, forget it. I'm just going to look at all this as if it's a parable or an allegory or spiritual. And you have to look at a lot of Bible verses as not meaning what they're saying. You have to just dismiss the plain meaning of a lot of what's in the scriptures in order to fit it into this you know, paradigm of there is no millennium, um, all the things that are that were kind of promised for this period are applicable to the church in a spiritual sense, or the things that were promised to Israel are not going to be given because Israel was not faithful and they rejected the Messiah. So all of those prophecies supposedly were conditional. And because they were all conditional and Israel failed to meet the conditions, none of that's going to come to pass. So there's huge swaths of the Old Testament that are just meaningless now because Israel has lost their chance. That's how you have to interpret it. And it's nonsense. You know, if there's a condition to a prophecy, it's going to be stated that way. And it's not stated that way. The, the prophets just simply told us this is what's going to happen in most instances. Now, there were you know exceptions to that where it's conditional. But most of the time, the prophet's not making a condition. He's just listening to what God's telling him is going to happen. And he's writing it down or he's having his scribe write it down. So I refuse to allegorize away the eschatological prophecies. And part of the reason is because I see what happened with Yeshua's disciples while he was walking with them. The disciples of Yeshua were often confused. They didn't understand how the Messianic prophecies were being fulfilled. And these were prophecies they were very familiar with. They knew the scriptures, but they did not understand how they were coming to pass until after the resurrection and after the resurrected Messiah explained it all to them on the road to Emmaus. And then even after that, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, they began to receive an even greater understanding of the scriptures and the prophecies started to make a lot more sense to them. And they were able to explain those things in the epistles. But during their time walking with Yeshua, they were in large part clueless. Let me read you a little bit about this from Luke. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia from Jerusalem. They talked with each other about all of these things which had happened, and it happened while they talked and questioned together that Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you talking about as you walk and are so sad? One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things which have happened there in these days? And then I'm going to skip a little bit. A couple of verses later, he said to them, Foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke twenty four thirteen through 27. 
It's interesting how many times Yeshua says the word all in his response. He says, you're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And Christ has to suffer these things, which he explains from all the prophets. And he explains from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So three times we see the word all. In other words, they should have been taking this more systematically. The disciples were dazed and confused. They couldn't understand how Yeshua could have died before completing his mission. They knew he was the Messiah. They had seen all the evidence. All the hallmarks were there. I mean, he had done the miracles. He had raised the dead. He had the words of life. And yet he hadn't completed what they thought was the mission of the Messiah by overcoming the Gentile nations, by becoming the king of the whole earth. So what were they to think? And then Yeshua had to show them what the the big picture was, that there were two phases, that they were missing part of the equation. He took them a little bit at a time through the Old Testament prophecies and, and they saw what they had been missing. Just because we don't understand how something will work out doesn't mean it won't. Can I get an amen? Just because we don't understand how something will work out doesn't mean it won't. God will make it happen. And when we understand how he does it finally, we're going to be amazed. We're going to think to ourselves, oh, of course, that's it. Actually, I think that we can know a lot about how God is going to pull things off in regards to the last days. Because if we couldn't, then Yeshua wouldn't have chastised his disciples. It was possible for them to understand what was going on if they had studied to show themselves approved. If they had just simply looked carefully into these things without the bias of the culture to take them off target. Their Jewish religious leaders taught them what to think about the mission of the Messiah. See, they had this cultural bias that was already drawing them away from a clear understanding of the scriptures. Everybody expected it was going to be a certain way with the Messiah, and they just couldn't think outside of that box. But we can. We have the example of their misfortune, and we don't have to follow in those footsteps. We can remove ourselves from the normal thinking of our day and we can reevaluate without a bias. And when we do that, at least in my experience, you discover a lot of amazing things that you otherwise wouldn't have. So if during your study of eschatology, it's frustrating and things just don't seem to fit, don't worry about it. Things didn't fit for the disciples at first either. You'll get it eventually. I can speak from experience. Yeah, I used to not understand most of this stuff. And as I studied and as I asked the Lord for wisdom to understand, it all started to fall into place. And now there are some things that are still opaque to me, but not that many, especially compared to how it was like before. Um, Many things have become understandable simply because I have spent so much time and asked for so much help in understanding these things that uh, yeah, it's coming together. And it'll come together for you, too. I think you just have to ask. You have to expect that he's going to help you and you have to take your time with it. And don't go into these things with a bias. Don't go in thinking that you know it already. Don't assume that what you've been taught before about eschatology is true. Just approach the scriptures 
with a blank slate and let him speak to you and let the spirit speak to you. Always pray as you study and you're going to get it. So as I start to give a rundown of what to expect in these next several decades and beyond, I want you to understand that I'm coming at this from an unabashedly premillennialist standpoint. And by the way, not the dispensationalist version of premillennialism, but the historic version, or at least very close to the historic version of premillennialism. Postmillennialism and amillennialism to me are entirely bunk. Now, I would like to do a thorough explanation as to why I believe that, but that's going to take a while. So we're going to have to probably dedicate some future episodes to um, disassembling the post-millennialist and amillennialist views. But for right now, just understand this is basically historic premillennialism that I'm going to be teaching you. I grew up going to churches of Christ and they all believe slightly differently because they're not really centralized like most denominations. But for the most part, they believed in a millennialism and they had a specific slant on that called preterism. Um, preterism. Well, I'm not going to get into what all that is, but suffice it to say that even as a child, I just thought all that was nuts. I did not understand why they didn't just take the prophecies at face value. Thankfully, my mom didn't buy into that either. So she studied premillennialism and taught a lot of that to me. And even though I wasn't incredibly interested in it at the time, I did absorb most of it and it came back to help me out later on. So let me give you a bit of an overview of the last days. Unfortunately, things are not going to get better like the post-millennialists expect. And things will not stay as they are. Status quo will not be maintained as some amillennialists would argue, but things are instead going to get worse overall. The apostles make it very clear people's behavior will get worse. Their hatred towards God will get worse. Uh, the climate situation will get worse. Animals will die. Even plant life will struggle to a large degree. You're going to have an increasing number of natural disasters and plagues that uh, have a supernatural origin you're going to have just increased chaos between nations. The geopolitical scene will be very chaotic. And you're going to have famine and pestilence. So uh, health will really suffer for quite a while leading into the last few years. This is what we're supposed to expect. I know it's not good news. Sorry. The good news comes after that. But it starts with bad news. Things will get worse. But it's just like any story. You know, any good story has incredible tension that builds and builds and the stakes get higher and higher. And eventually everything comes to a climax. But along the way, the good guys get um, their situation gets more and more hopeless and they get beat down over and over again. And they have to keep coming up with new ways, new approaches they have to keep trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing until finally they achieve success. That is exactly what happens in biblical prophecy. And of course, it should be that way because the God who created story, who who structured this world in such a way that good story has that type of a template to it is going to structure the overall story of the cosmos in the same way. 
it would have to be that way, wouldn't it? That the big story of the cosmos would have to be reflected in the little stories that we write. Just like all good artwork is based on what we've already perceived that God has already made. And we're just taking different components of it and putting it together in interesting ways. Story is the same way. All the stories we write are based on the bigger template, at least the good stories. Now, a story that doesn't follow that template is not going to be a great one that people remember and want to pass on. But the really good stories follow the template. Just the very template of storytelling should instruct us in the fact that all of history is going to follow that pattern. So things will get increasingly bad, but right when things look the most hopeless, that's when Messiah will step in. In the last days, the wicked will grow more wicked and the holy will grow more holy and there will be an increasing amount of polarization. There's a part of Second Baruch that says that very wicked and very holy deeds will be occurring simultaneously in the last days. So the people of the light and the people of the darkness will be separated as never before. And we have to increasingly draw ourselves out. Now, God is going to draw us out in certain ways, but we need to cooperate with him in removing ourselves from the Babylonian system that we're living in. And we, we really are living in a foreign land. We're strangers in this Egyptian and Babylonian landscape where the way of things is not the way of God. It's not God's kingdom. And so we're little, we've got little bubbles that we're in and we carry God's kingdom with us from place to place like we're uh, walking around in a bubble. But because his kingdom has not come and encompassed the whole earth yet, it's only here and there. And in the last days, we are going to have to gravitate together and we're going to have to have communities that are bubbles and that are increasing areas of light to fend off the darkness. You know, we're not going to be able to do this as as individuals for very much longer, or even for as individual congregations for very much longer, uh, things are going to get real. Things are going to get super serious and we've got to band together in larger communities. And the Lord is just going to have to help us to, to figure all this out and you know, with the logistics of it all, but we're going to have to come together to survive um, and not be sucked into the darkness. Okay. So there's going to be a separation. We really need to expect that. But let me talk about where our hope is and, and what we should be expecting in terms of the good that comes at the end of all of this darkness. So the blessed hope is reiterated again and again in the New Testament that we are to be looking forward to this day when we are redeemed. Now, we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but that is only in a legal sense. We've already been redeemed. The full redemption of the world and of our bodies has not yet occurred. Um, and so we continue to battle against our flesh and we continue to battle against the ways of the world. We're still in it. So the redemption in its fullness awaits fulfillment. Um, and that will be completed on the, the day that we call the resurrection or at the event that we call the resurrection, which is the beginning of the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul did a great job of explaining this in his epistles, but basically, whether we're dead or alive, we're going to be giving a new and eternal body, and that body is going to be immediately snatched up into heaven. This is going to unfold just like the normal Hebrew uh, marriage process where the groom has left 
for a while and he's gone to build this extra room called the Huppa onto his father's house. And then he would go after the father gave him permission, he would go to gather his bride, but he never made it all the way to her home. He would announce his coming with the trumpet and with the shout of the the best man. And then the bride would go out to meet him. And this was generally done in the middle of the night. And then they would return to the father's house and they would enter into the huppa and would be there for a week. It was a, a seven day honeymoon in that sequestered place. The exact same thing is going to happen with us and Yeshua. Yeshua returns with the blowing of the trumpet, the final trumpet. He then uh, has the archangel shout in proclamation and the bride comes out to meet him. In other words, that's when we receive our resurrected bodies and we're snatched up into the air and then we go to heaven, which I think means that we have uh, at that point some extra dimensional capabilities. So we proceed into heaven and uh, we go into the wedding chambers and we're there for a week. And after that, we emerge and there's a wedding feast, which lasts for who knows how long. And after that feast, the Messiah is then free to go down to the earth and engage in war and claim the earth back for the kingdom of God. Now, some people will say, excuse me, that the Messiah cannot go back immediately after the wedding feast because there's a Torah commandment that says that a man must not leave his wife for the first year in order to go off to war. So the war chiefs of Israel could not expect that a newly married man would leave his household and go engage in battle uh, for the first year after his marriage. And this makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is this is a gracious thing for God to establish is that he should not be under the threat of death when he's trying to enjoy this new phase of his life. Um, the husband should be able to enjoy his wife and vice versa. And they should have peace together for a while before there's any threat that he would get killed in battle or, or even that he would be separated from her uh, for a time, even if he survived, because nobody wants to be separated from their their newly beloved. Um, that's just not a wonderful thing to have happen. So God was giving couples in Israel time together. The reason I don't think that this applies to Messiah is that Messiah can't die. There's no possibility that he's going to get defeated and die and not be able to return to his bride. So the war campaign that he's going to engage in is going to be fairly short lived. And then the bride comes down to meet him and we dwell in Jerusalem with him. In fact, it says that we reign with him. We're the queen. He's the king. We're the queen. And uh, there's very little time in there where we're not together. I think the spirit of the law that we find in tour about this is that, you know, the, the man could potentially uh, meet the, the end of his life. You know, he's, his fate could be uh, determined in battle. And so it wasn't fair for the woman who just got married to lose her husband like that. There's no threat of that with Messiah. And so I don't think that that commandment applies to him. So right after the feast, he goes down and, um, and this is all the beginning of the day of the Lord. I'll get to that in a minute, actually. Let's come back to that. But uh, after the resurrection, there's a process of rewarding that happens. There's a Bema seat judgment and eternal rewards are given out based on our merits, based on what we have done in this life. 
the way that Paul described it is some people will have precious metals and precious gems that they have accumulated to themselves because of their good works. And other people will not have good works to show for their life, um, especially if they came to believe later in their life. And therefore, all of their works will be like straw and stubble that would just get burned up because we're all going to go through this uh, refining fire. And in that process of the, the fire stands for the judgment, right? So in that process of being judged and having our lives examined before God, those things that we did that have eternal value will survive and be rewards for us. But those things that we did that did not have any eternal value will just burn away and be as if they were not. The Apostle John wrote that those who participate in the first resurrection are very blessed because it is those of us who have believed even when we couldn't see God, even when we could not perceive the Messiah and he was hidden away, but we still served him and we still believed it is those of us who will end up reigning with him in the millennium. We will be his bride. We will be his queen. And we are going to partake in, um, in all the glory of that situation. There's another resurrection after the millennial kingdom of all the believers who lived during that time and all of the unbelievers who have ever lived. Uh, everyone will be resurrected and there will be a great white throne judgment at that point that uh, wraps up everything. And then the earth will cease to exist and the heavens will cease to exist and all things will be made new. Um, but the first resurrection is our blessed hope right now. That's what we're looking forward to because we're not in the millennial kingdom. We are looking towards that, uh, that wedding that kicks off the millennial kingdom. So the millennial or the messianic kingdom is going to be absolutely amazing, even though it's not going to be the very final state where there is no sin whatsoever. There, all of the effects of the fall are completely gone. It's not that, but it is between that state and the state we're in now. It's this in-between period. And so it will be a very tranquil time. It's going to be the Shabbat millennium. It's it's the Sabbath of the week of millenniums. And so it will be a time of rest for the earth. The earth itself will be very bountiful, especially the promised land. There's going to be streams everywhere, plenty of rain. The earth is going to be uh, full of nutrients and it's going to bring forth just the most wonderful produce that you could imagine. The animals will be at peace with one another in the promised land. The lion will lay down with the lamb or the wolf will lay down with the, the lamb. And uh, it's just going to be an incredible scene of harmony. That's the best word, harmony. Now, there will be some exceptions. There will be certain nations who will decide they don't want to do what Yeshua has asked them to do, and he's going to send a plague against them. He's going to withdraw the rain so that they have famine for a long period of time until they submit, and they will. They'll submit, and after he's disciplined, they're going to behave themselves better, um, but there's going to be very little in terms of rebellion or conflict until the end of the millennium. Now, at the end of the millennium, it changes a little bit because during this whole time, Satan and the other fallen immortals are going to be locked up in the abyss and they won't be able to affect humanity during that time period. But at the end of that, he's going to be released for a short time. He's going to once again deceive the nations. And then there's going to be a large portion of the world population at that time that's going to march against Jerusalem and try to destroy it. 
but God is going to supernaturally destroy those armies. And then the entire earth is going to be uh, immolated. Everything will be destroyed. He's going to have the great white throne judgment. And then the new heavens and the new earth um, will be put in place. And never again will there be any kind of wickedness or rebellion ever. So that's sort of the big picture. Uh, let's. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention is that the ethnic Israelites who are scattered throughout the world right now, um, some of whom have started to return to the nation of Israel, but uh, many of whom are still within the nations, they are going to be gathered back to the promised land at the end of the age. Now, this is only those who survive, and that's going to be a remnant. And several times in the oracles, we read that term, the remnant of Israel. So there's only a portion of ethnic Israel that's going to make it through all the stuff at the end of the age, and they're going to then be brought back. Um, the There are many prophecies that promise that God is going to bring back all of his people who survived to the promised land from all four corners of the earth. Uh, so some verses you could look at are Isaiah 27, 12 to 13, Isaiah 35, 10, Zephaniah 3, 18 through 20, Zechariah 8, 7, 1 Baruch 4, 36 to 37, and 5, 5 to 6, Tobit 14, yeah, 14, 5, uh, and many others. Hold it right there, watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. I love VeggieTales. I loved it when I was 10, and I still love it. And what's not to love? They're funny, they're cute, and they teach about the Bible. Maybe I married the Watchman because he reminded me of VeggieTales, which, if you're not familiar with it, it's an animated show starring cute little vegetables that tell stories from the Bible. We have a CD of the VeggieTales songs that we listen to in the car when we're with my stepson. I've had this song from the Rack Shack and Benny episode in my head for days. In this version of Rack Shack and Benny, it's a retelling of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three veggies work at a chocolate factory, and Mr. Nezer loves chocolate bunnies, makes a 90-foot bunny, and expects people to bow down to it and sing the bunny song with lyrics like, I don't love my mom or my dad, just the bunny. What a baddie. So it stood out to me in the song that Mr. Nezer sings to the kids before they're put in the furnace is, I didn't ask for much, just one simple little thing. Didn't ask you to part the waters, I just wanted to hear you sing. This reminded me that in the real version, King Nebuchadnezzar would certainly have heard of Yahweh, God of Israel. He would have heard of the impossible feats that God had accomplished, so I wondered aloud to the watchman why Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe. The watchman gave a glorious answer that he may use in a future podcast, but the other point to it is this. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't experienced Yahweh in his life yet. I know a big reason of why I believe is because how I've seen him work in my life and if I'd never seen Yahweh show up in any way, I might struggle with belief as well. This ties into the next point. It stood out to me this time of reading the story, which is found in the third book of Daniel, that God went so far as allowing the men to be tossed into a seven times hotter than usual furnace before rescuing them. He could see and know their hearts, and he knew their faithfulness, and he could have swept them up and saved them before they even stepped foot in the furnace. I mentioned that, and the watchman said, yeah, but that wouldn't be as cool of a story. It sounded funny at the time, but he's right. 
It's way more impressive and awe-inducing to keep someone alive while in a furnace or in a den of lions. King Nebuchadnezzar may have not recognized Yahweh as the Almighty God if the furnace didn't light, or if the door to it got jammed, or if the men were able to escape. But because he saw that fourth figure in the fire, he acknowledged Yahweh to be as strong and as all-powerful as the men had said all along. So I'm going to go thank God for the fiery furnace that he's allowed in my life. It makes for a way better story and clearly shows his might to the non-believer. I might just make up a little VeggieTales-inspired song to go along with my gratitude. Babe, that wasn't really enough time for me to finish my cup of detox roasted dandelion spice tea. So now I'm going to be like half detoxed. I'm not sure what that means. Are half of my organs going to work better than the other half? Thanks a lot, babe. Let's talk for a minute about the parable of the fig tree. At the end of his Olivet Discourse, Yeshua used the fig tree as a mile marker for how close we were getting to the end of the age. So in this prophecy, he says, when you see the fig tree become tender and begin to put forth shoots, then you'll know that the end is near, even within one generation. Well, people have jumped to the conclusion that the fig tree is Israel and that when we saw Israelites starting to come back to the land of Israel, that was the fulfillment of this parable. And that was the signal to us that we were within one generation of the end of the age. Well, that's not true because we are now 70 years past when people started going back to the land of Israel. And uh, even if 80 years is a generation, which could be because in the Psalms, we see that a man's uh, a man's generation is 70 years, 80 if by strength. So maybe 80 years. The problem is uh, there's still so much to be done. There's still so many prophecies that need to be fulfilled that there's no way that we could wrap everything up within the next several years. That's just not going to happen. So this is not the last generation that began in 1948. So what does the fig tree represent? Well, I think the Bible can be used to interpret this. The Bible does interpret itself. So let's look at where we find fig trees. And also let's look at the other types of trees that are used to describe Israel in one way or the other. In Judges 9, we have an interesting passage about three trees and a bramble. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole passage, but you can read Judges 9 for yourself if you like, and you'll see that there's a fig tree, an olive tree, a vine, which is uh, where grapes will come from, and then a bramble. And Basically, the bramble represents the enemy. The bramble is this type of tree or um, uh, foliage that is not going to provide any real cover and any uh, fruit. It's not going to put out anything of value. It's not really going to help. But in the parable, it pretends to be um, a a source of covering and, and a source of protection. And this unwise group of people go to be covered by the bramble. The other three trees are not wanting to accept them. So they they finally turn to the bramble. It's not important really what this means right now. But for our purposes, we need to realize that uh, the three trees represent 
three different parts of Israel. So the cultivated olive tree in Romans stands for Israel. That's pretty clear. When we read that, we understand cultivated tree is Israel and the uncultivated olive trees are the Gentile nations and people from the uncultivated tree are switched over. You know, the branches are broken off and they're grafted into the cultivated tree. That's a representation of unbelieving Gentiles coming to belief, being removed from the Gentile nations and becoming part of Israel. Uh, And when I say Israel, I mean it in the broadest sense, like spiritual Israel, true believing, um, submissive Israel. So the olives represent the masses of humanity at large because we have cultivated olives and we have uncultivated olives. So you might say olives are like citizens or civilians in general. What about grapes, the fruit that comes from the vine? Well, those represent royalty and nobility. In Jeremiah 2.21, we see that uh, in the parable there, this um, landowner uh, or the master of an estate has a noble vine planted in his on his land, in his estate. So the noble vine gives us a little hint there of, of what comes of the vine. It's something representing nobility. The nobility is where all the authority and the military power resides in society. This is why Yeshua called himself the vine, the true vine, the source of power. He says, without me, you can do nothing. You know, all things are possible through me because the power of the Lord uh, of the Most High was channeling through Yeshua and Yeshua is sending that out to us, to the branches. So uh, he is the source of all that power for us. Now, there are other grapes, bad grapes in the scriptures called the grapes of wrath. And what those are is the. Uh, the Antichrist and his soldiers. It's his army. It's the the group of people in the end of the age who have great power and military uh, capability and they come against the real Messiah and against the armies of heaven. Those are the grapes of wrath that will be tread down by the Messiah. So bad grapes in authority over the world at that time. So that's what the grapes or that's what the vine represents. And then we have the last tree, which is the fig tree. And the figs represent priests or religious leadership. So the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, they possessed Jerusalem and they possessed the holy temple. And the Levitical priests operated there. In Jeremiah 24, we we see a parable with two baskets of figs. And he's told that one basket... Uh, was good figs and the other basket was full of bad figs. And what these represented were the good and bad Judeans that lived in Israel before or lived in Judah, um, the southern kingdom more specifically, before the Babylonian exile. The northern kingdom had already been taken away at this point. It was only the southern kingdom that remained. But within that southern kingdom of Judah, which involved more than one tribe, but collectively it was called Judah, Uh, there were both good and bad figs. And the Babylonians removed uh, a lot of those good figs. Some of them were left, but they removed many of them, took them to Babylon. Um, But they also tread down a lot of the bad figs, destroyed those figs, and destroyed the fig tree uh, to a large degree overall. But not all of the good figs were lost. They were preserved in that. 
So this brings us to a very important prophetic moment in the life of Yeshua, which is when he cursed the fig tree. He came across this fig tree that was not bearing any fruit and he cursed it. And he said, you know, that you would be cursed speaking to the tree. You will be cursed for an age. Now, in many English translations, you're going to see the word forever or eternally at the end of his statement, but that's not what the original language is communicating. The original language there means for an age or until the end of the age, not eternally as in forever and ever without end. So he was saying that the fig tree would be cursed and would would lack life until the end of the age. This goes right along with what he said at the end of the Olivet Discourse, that this fig tree would become tender. So before that point, it's not tender. It's dried up. It's useless. There's no life in it. Um, But then at some point at the end of the age, it will become tender and put forth shoots. Uh, But it's very important that this was the fig tree that was cursed, not the olive tree. And that's, by the way, Matthew 21, 18 through 20. One more parable that I want to mention comes from Luke 13. It's the parable of a man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And for three years, he looked for fruit on this fig tree and found none. And so he spoke to the gardener and he said, why is it that this fig tree is here taking up ground when it's not producing anything? And the man convinces him to leave it there for slightly longer. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then he'll uh, go ahead and tear it up. Well, this was a parable about Yeshua's ministry. For three years, he searched the religious leaders, the the fig tree, for fruit that they would, you know, bear something valuable, something in keeping with the goodness of God. And he found nothing. And so he said, this thing needs to be torn up. Um, Well, it wasn't immediately torn up at the end of his ministry. He gave it a little, God gave it a little bit more time to, you know, repent and start bearing some fruit. And that didn't happen. And so, of course, we know what occurred. Uh, They were judged and the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was raised. And since that time, the fig tree has been cursed. It it has been uh, totally lifeless. What all of this tells us is that the fig tree of the Olivet Discourse is the Jewish religious leadership. It's the priesthood of the southern kingdom. Thus, the fig tree becoming tender is when we start to see Jewish religious leaders leaving rabbinic Judaism and returning to biblical worship precepts, including temple observances. And especially as Jewish leaders become more open to the idea that Yeshua is Messiah, that is them putting forth shoots. They're becoming tender towards God and the true word of God. Now we know when the last generation is going to begin which I believe is happening now. And I think a generation is about 40 years. So that's the time that we've got left. The next thing I want to talk to you about is the situation globally between the nations as we approach the last days. I want to refer you to a blog post that I recently put out about the superpowers in prophecy, specifically America, Russia, some of the East Asian and South Asian countries, and the European countries. And I believe all of these things are in scripture. Specifically, I think that we can find them in the book of Daniel. One of Daniel's dreams that I think has long been misinterpreted 
involves a churning sea and four beasts coming up out of it. I describe exactly why I believe that this is not about past kingdoms, beast kingdoms, but about future beast kingdoms in that blog post. So I'm not going to go over all that. You can go to my website and find that and read it when you have a chance. But let me just summarize and say that the C represents the Gentile peoples, which we have explained to us in, in, excuse me, can't talk right now. In the book of Revelation, we see that the C represents the people of the nations. That being the case, I think we can safely assume that the churning sea in Daniel's vision means that the world is going to be in upheaval. There will be a lot of turmoil on the global stage. At the center of this turmoil will be four kingdoms represented by beasts. The beasts are a lion with wings like an eagle, a bear that's raised up on one side, a two-headed, excuse me, four-headed leopard with two pairs of wings from unidentified birds, and then a fourth sort of unidentified or vague beast that's more terrible than the rest, but it's not really described as being like any particular animal. And this fourth beast has 10 horns. It also has iron teeth and it tramples down everything else. It's uh, the most fearsome of all the beasts. That beast, we can easily correlate to the beast that John sees in the book of Revelation that is a conglomeration of the other three beast kingdoms that Daniel saw. So John's beast is uh, part leopard, it's part lion, it's part bear, and then it has um, the ten horns, and it has the iron teeth, and, and all of these characteristics of the kingdoms combined. It's a chimera. What this means is that the fourth kingdom is going to assimilate. It's going to overcome and assimilate the other kingdoms. These are not kingdoms that have existed over a long period of time, one after the other throughout history. These are kingdoms that exist at the end of the age together, all as contemporaries. And the fourth kingdom, which is a European kingdom, it's it's the revival of the Roman Empire And I'm not going to tell you exactly how I know that, but basically it goes back to the statue vision of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of that and its 10 toes corresponding to the 10 horns. But we don't need to get into the details. Just realize that this fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire come back to life in a manner of speaking, or it's, it's sort of its last manifestation, and it will consume the rest of these kingdoms. Now, what it will not consume are the Muslim kingdoms, the kingdoms of the South, as we'll see in just a minute. But it it pretty much takes over everything else. And it will be a very terrible, um, awfully mighty kingdom that nothing can seemingly stand against. I think that this vision of Daniel's is parallel to what we find in the beginning of Revelation when the seals are opened. I think what we're seeing in Daniel's chaotic seed vision is World War III. And the side effects of that are what we see with the uh, last couple of horsemen, where you have worldwide plague and famine and death. Uh, The second horseman is war. It's the horse that's red and the rider on it 
uh, is given the ability to take peace from the earth and uh, to bring war. It's definitely not a stretch to think that pestilence and famine would follow World War III because World War III is most likely going to be fought with nuclear weapons and it's going to cause massive changes to the environment. It can cause massive changes in human population centers so that there won't be as much farming and cultivation as there normally would be and uh, people will be displaced and people will lack um, the, the normal health situation that keeps things kind of in balance. They're going to go to new places and be exposed to new germs. They'll be malnourished, which will dampen their immune systems. I mean, you can see how all of this is like a chain of dominoes. You know, one thing collapses and then the rest uh, just follows on its heels. So I think that the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the vision of Daniel's beast kingdoms rising out of the sea are really talking to us about the setup for Daniel's 70th week or the last seven years of the age. Now we'll get into what Daniel's 70th week is here in a little bit, maybe in the next episode because I'm running out of time. But uh, this is all, I think, the precursor to that last period, which some people will call tribulation. I don't because the tribulation is never spoken of as being seven years long. There's a great tribulation that is three and a half years but there's no seven-year tribulation in Scripture. But we can call it Daniel's 70th week, which is a, a week of years. It's also called a Shemitah. So Daniel's 70th Shemitah will be after all of this turmoil with World War III. And uh, that's probably going to taper off to some extent as we enter into the 70th week. By the way, I think that the seal and trumpet plagues will be spread out over many years. It's not all going to happen within that last seven year period, as dispensationalists like to teach. But the bowls of wrath are going to be at the very end. They're poured out quickly, not over a long period of time, but over a short period of time on the day of the Lord. I don't interpret Revelation chronologically. I see many reasons why we can't do that, and we have to interpret it thematically instead. And so I don't see the the uh, plagues of the trumpets and the events of the seals as needing to be sequential. I think they could overlap. I think they could be uh, starting and ending in different places. Actually, let me take that back. I do believe that the last seal and the last trumpet are the same event, but I think that the seals and the trumpets start at different times and their intervals or the pacing is different. So during this time of world war and the four horsemen riding, the Antichrist will arise as a military leader, probably in Israel. And he's going to start small. Daniel calls him a little horn, but he'll grow rapidly in power. Now, Israel is going to be one of the 10 nations of the revived Roman Empire. And whoever the current leader of Israel is during that time is going to get displaced by the little horn who the book of Daniel tells us will eject three of the kings from this coalition of ten kings. Daniel has a lot to say about the career of the Antichrist and uh, how mighty he will become and the kinds of uh, tactics and, and abilities that he will bring to bear. Uh, the book of Revelation also talks about it, but more succinctly. But in Daniel chapter 11, we have a very interesting story about the kings of the north and the south. And there's a lot of uh, time that's skipped over. There's a big gap 
in the narrative between the time of the Greek empire being split into four and then the time of the end, because the intervening time is not really important to the overall narrative. We had to see the setup for everything, and then we have to see how it ends up. But the stuff in between is not really important to what Daniel is being told here. So one of the kingdoms that came out of Greece, the Greece that Alexander the Great spread and made so powerful, is what we now know as the Western world. So it was the Seleucid Syrian Empire that led to the Roman rule as we know it, and then became uh, Europe uh, in the Middle Ages, and then eventually spread out and became the Europe of today plus the Americas. Let me read you just a little bit from Daniel 11. It says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. That's the king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him, the king of the south, like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, that is, the holy land, and many countries shall be overthrown. That's verses 40 and 41. So there's this conflict in the last days between the king of the north and the king of the south. These are the two big players on the world stage at that point. And while I can't cover all the details of the rest of the chapter right now and what it means, understand that the latter part of Daniel's prophecy of this north-south conflict describes a clash between a coming European superpower that revived Roman Empire that I talked about, the successor to the Seleucid Syrian rule that came out of Alexander the Great, and a leader who is the successor to the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt, the king of the south, which is now part of the Islamic world. That was a lot, so let me say it more succinctly. A coalition of Muslim empires led by Egypt will be in conflict with the coalition of ten kings that will make up the fourth beast kingdom that we see described in Revelation. There have been some Christian teachers that have been speculating that the Antichrist will be Islamic, but nothing could be farther from the truth. He must be a Judean to be accepted as the Hebrew Messiah. You see, the Jews understand the prophecies about Messiah to an extent. They understand that he must be of the line of David. He must be of the tribe of Judah, and he must come from Bethlehem. You know, there are certain things that have to be fulfilled in order for this person to be the Messiah. He's the false or the stand-in Messiah. He's going to fulfill all of the prophecies at least many of them, enough of them to convince people that he is, in fact, this character that uh, was written about. And he's going to fight the Muslim countries led by Egypt. He will be the king of the north. I think I'm going to have to stop there. There's just too much to this. I'm running out of time. So we'll split this into two parts. And next time we'll talk about Daniel's 70th week or his 70th Shemitah. And then we'll talk about the day of the Lord and everything that goes on then. In closing, I want to let you know that I do take questions and answers. So if you would like to send me a question to have me answer on air, please do so. And I prefer if you send it to me as an audio recording. So you can record yourself asking the question on your phone or on uh, an app on your computer and then attach that file to the email, which can be sent to questions at watchmanalexander.com. 
I'm available as a speaker, so if you'd like to have me come to your congregation or organization and give a talk or an all-day seminar, please get in contact with me through my speaking page. It's watchmanalexander.com forward slash speaking dot html. And please rate this podcast if you've enjoyed it. If my work has blessed you, I would really appreciate your review and your star rating on iTunes because it helps other people to find the podcast. That finishes up episode eight. We'll pick up where we left off next time. And until then, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchman out.